Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, Ich würde die Hoffnung geben, alter Freund. Ich verlange dafür nur eins. Storen nicht meine Kreise. I'm Nick Houghton of 4%German.com and I'm joined by my co-host Simon, loves the German Donna Maddox. <laughs> How are you, Simon? I'm all right, mate. I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm just coming back off another weekend of enjoying the benefits of a nine euro rail ticket. Where have you been? Um, yeah, well, I went to see you. You did? <laughs> I, didn't, I forgot about that. You were. I'm so memorable, he's forgotten. <laughs> it was a flying visit, but it was, yeah, I mean, it was all right. But do you know when you spend too much time with other humans and you begin to wish that they would all just fuck off for a bit you know that's that's kind of where i'm at yeah you were here yeah i remember that feeling yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's partially to do with the pandemic but just being in close proximity to people playing music on their speakers no one having headphones uh younger selling sheets singing uh shouting at people on the trains all that jazz is just not for me really mm. so uh, but it was only nine euros so i can't complain too much it's that interesting balance, isn't it, where traveling on trains has got worse as an experience, mm. but it's so cheap that you yeah. you feel like you can't complain. I mean, I found a seat. It was comfortable enough. It was a bit noisy, but I had my headphones, so I just banged them on and read a book. It was fine, but I, I think it's just proximity to people I still haven't got quite used to mm. being that close in proximity to people. So, uh, yeah, I guess I've got to get used to it again. <laughs> Sadly, <laughs> they have yeah. to interact with other people. Deutsche Bahn hasn't accepted my suggestion of a, a, a Nick Houghton only carriage, but yeah. I'm sure it's available for the right price. Yeah, and <laughs> I tried to think how high that price is. Yeah. More than I, I I could ever afford, I think. Uh, yeah. So, but you were doing a bit of traveling as well, weren't you, Simon? Yeah, the wife and I went up to Nordrhein Westfalen, uh, to Essen, where her family are from, or where her small portion of the family are from the rest are from like Gelsenkirchen region uh, hence the Schalke Nofir connection and yeah I mean we we had to travel for not the most pleasant of reasons unfortunately we had to attend a funeral um, mm. and yeah of course really really sad and a, a tricky time and it was the first COVID funeral that I'd been to as well the person did pass from that and so yeah, yeah that kind of like focuses the mind a little bit that Mm -hmm. Obviously, you hear about people getting sick and people having a hard time maybe with symptoms. I mean, my wife was, was sick for a good 10 days with COVID. Um, but yeah, to actually like lose someone in the family mm. to it is definitely uh, an unpleasant reality. And yeah, he was also like the elder statesman of the family. Um, mm. He was my wife's favorite uncle um, and very much a father figure to her. So yeah, it's really, really mm. sad. But what was quite positive about it, obviously, we got to see the family and we got to be together and share stories and, and memories of him. And it was quite uh, a positive experience in that sense. But also, him and his wife left the, the Catholic Church. I'm not sure how many years ago, but a fair while back. And that caused a bit of a kerfuffle within their, their church-going community. And they were a little bit ostracized, um, which you kind of don't imagine happening these days. No. But apparently, that is how certain Catholics still roll. Uh, and so because of that, they didn't have a Catholic funeral. And they actually en ended up having, uh, I guess we'd call it a forest funeral. Um, right. So he was cremated and then an urn was set at the base of a tree. Um, the tree will then have a plaque attached to it with his name and, and dates. Uh, and that becomes the place where the family can memorialize him. And it's very, very nice. Mm. But the service itself was done in the forest. And they had like this giant wooden cross and benches so people could have a ceremony of sorts together and they hired a uh, a trio of strings and played some Bach because that was his his jam apparently and people shared stories in in the forest and then we walked through the woods in a little sort of promenade together following his urn in like total silence and for me it, it was a really really beautiful ceremony because it was so natural and it kind of felt like what people did way before the Holy Roman Empire and um, standing at the base of these trees surrounded by family and loved ones and just kind of feeling yeah feeling nature being so present and the, and the reality of that returning uh, to nature was was really yeah it was profound I imagine a lot of people who attended will now be thinking oh this is something I can imagine happening to me when when I go because it was it was beautiful it was 
natural, it was sincere, it was it was clean, and it wasn't dictated by some priest who's given free reign to say whatever he feels or she feels is appropriate, which, yeah, you don't always want to hear the the sermon of a priest. <laughs> no, no, I, I understand that. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you grew up <laughs> with the vicar as a father. You definitely don't need that all the time anymore. <laughs> it's an interesting thing that you... You mentioned about the sort of setting and the environment and the people involved because I've, I've been to a few funerals in my time, sadly, and I think I've been to a lot of different types. I've been to Catholic ones, Anglican ones, and humanist ones. Mm-hmm. I think with funerals, right, and this has always been my feeling from the first funeral I ever went to as a little kid, and it's something my mum had said at the time was like, that the funerals are an important part of the process of grieving because they're that moment where there's a level of closure Mm. Like I think it's the act is quite important. The and however that act is performed, regardless of whether it's religious or non-religious or whatever, what denomination of religion, it's important to have that act psychologically yeah. as well as, as as an opportunity, as you said, to bring the family together. And and it's obviously funerals are more about the people who are left behind than they are necessarily about the person. I think I've always felt that mm. it's about collective grieving, and I think that's really important. But it does depend a lot on the people involved, the nature of the bereavement, but also like the eulogy. I always found is like really important. And I'll say this for my dad. I mean, I, I've never sort of seen eye to eye to him with regards to religion, but it's something that he was always very aware of how important that role was if he mm. was going to perform the eulogy and, and and how important it was to know about the family because I've seen eulogies given by people who didn't really know anything and the yeah. kind of boilerplate, template fill the sermon, as you said, or in this case, eulogy, but it does feel really impersonal. So it's mm. quite important that those things, that you have that personal connection to it. But it sounds like a really sort of good way to, to mark that moment and yeah. having that kind of outside in the forest that sort of sparks something in us. I don't know what, but that feeling of like trees and nature. Yeah. There's something quite German about like the woods and the forest. It's a big part of German culture as well. So I think it's got that that kind of element to it. There's like a mysticism slash non-mysticism, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it felt very pagan in that sense. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's, I say it's, there's a lot of paganism. It feels very Germanic, <laughs> I mm-hmm. guess. But yeah, it was it was still like there were a couple of like touching moments, a couple of moments mm. where people laughed. Um, in fact, once he was put in the ground, there was people could go and drop flower petals from a bowl in there and sort of say their final goodbye. And the bowl got knocked over by like the fourth person who went to do it, and that had happened at his mother's funeral as well. So the whole family right. were just like, "Oh, it's just like all my." When when I saw it happen, I was like, "Oh my god, it's so embarrassing for her." The the woman that did this, it's, oh how awful! But everyone else was just like, "Oh how funny!" This is like a yeah, family yeah. connection about a, a mishap. Yeah, yeah. And there was also one of the most German things I've ever seen happen at a funeral where uh, my mother-in-law she read a story, and at the end she invited people to share any memories they wanted to. There was no warning of this happening, uh, and a couple of people spoke. My wife uh, said a few things that were really nice. And then when we went to the coffee and Kuchen, uh, the coffee and cake afterwards, a guy like stood up and clinked his glass and he was like, in the service notes, it said that we would tell our stories here. And at the time, I wasn't ready. <laughs> Just like, he's like referencing the contract <laughs> of this like sermon, of this uh, like ceremony we shared. And he's like, now I'm ready. Now I'm prepared. Here's my story. And it was, it was suitable. But something I love about that. In Britain, you could easily see someone just going, oh, well, I'll not say anything. Mm-hmm. I'll not make a fuss. You would regret that, wouldn't you? You would regret yeah. not having the opportunity to say your piece. And I think if you've got a funny story or a, a story about the, the deceased, then that can be really important, like sharing those mm-hmm. moments. And laughter's a funny thing at uh, at funerals, but nearly everyone I've been to, the eulogies had at least a couple of good jokes in there because ultimately you're celebrating someone's life, aren't you? It can't all be about their death. I mean, of course, there are cultural differences at play here, and mm-hmm. every family ticked unders. Every family's different. Mm-hmm. I knew beforehand, knowing my wife's family, that it would be a celebration of life at the end. Like people mm-hmm. would be laughing and telling positive stories. Mm-hmm. And it made me think of my granddad's funeral, mm-hmm. which is coming up ten years ago. At the wake, me, my brother, and our, our stepfather were talking, and we were telling stories about him and laughing. 
and someone one of his friends came over and like told us off for like laughing uh and it's just like he i don't think he realized who we were he just thought we were like i would have been yeah 25 26 he thought we were just like young kids being disrespectful and it was just like we're telling stories about our granddad yeah it made me realize that i'm very lucky to have a family that is mm-hmm. positive and has cause for optimism even in these mm-hmm. these difficult times so it was obviously not the nicest reason to travel to say goodbye to him and uh, to share it with the family was was really nice I mean, this might sound weird. I'm, I'm kind of interested in the sort of wake aspect because I know how my family does it traditionally is like when my granddad and grandma passed away, they passed away a good decade ago, but it was uh, straight to the pub. Like everyone went mm-hmm. to the pub, everyone had a few beers and were told stories and did that kind of thing. And it was very similar with the wake. Pretty much any wake that we've ever been to, most of them have been Scottish relatives and they're, okay. they've got like an Irish element in the family. So it's like you go to the wake and everyone's bang on the booze and you get out before around about eight o'clock because that's when things begin to sort of turn slightly because <laughs> these things tend to turn when you feel sort of bereavement and alcohol yeah. in the same in the same location. But it sounds like it was a much more civil environment to be in i think one person maybe had three beers and that was the most anyone drank like i, I had a radler uh, i was driving um but yeah mm-hmm. it wasn't alcohol fueled there were sandwiches and coffee and cake and the wife of the guy who passed she had an aperol spritz when i first saw it i was like that's quite a like a jubilant summary drink mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. a funeral it was a huge relief to see her doing well mm-hmm. because yeah obviously losing a partner of yeah 55 plus years i think they were together yeah there were a couple of ways that can go oh yeah and so yeah it was it was good to see her doing well and to be surrounded by friends and family knowing that there's a network there for her yeah so yeah it was it was good to have that optimism at the end it's that process isn't it i mean you always talk about the sort of process of bereavement and like you can avoid it you can take ages over the different stages of grief and all of these things Mm. but in the end you do have to go through them all in order to get to the sort of other side so and i think at the same time you have to find a way to carry on don't you you have to find a way to to move through it and however you do that is i mean there's no right and wrong way of doing it i don't think something similar happened with my wife and i and when you have something a bereavement and you've got everything coming at you still and your life's still ongoing and you've got to tell people as well and then you, you tend to get a lot of people who will tell you sort of they'll try and excuse it they won't let you just be the emotion that you are they'll try and and they're trying to be helpful aren't they i mean that's kind of what happens but i found like a lot of people would say to my wife or i like try and oh well at least this is something or at least that is something and it's kind of like no you just let us let us be in this this is emotion that needs to happen and let Mm. me be in it and let it be okay you don't need to tell me that kind of stuff or like and i think you, you don't get that in those family environments especially close-knit family where everyone's feeling the same thing together there's no need for that kind yeah. of process whereas in the scottish funeral it was very much the case of like no one talk everyone drink and then we'll get all our emotions out in a shouting match at the end <laughs> and it was it felt like the worst the worst way the worst process to go through but i think different cultures deal with it these things in very different ways I guess yeah. the somber German approach is, is maybe one way that's a little bit more healthy mentally, perhaps. Yeah, I think healthy is definitely one of the words I can use to, to describe how it felt very much a healthy reaction to what happened. Because, I mean, yeah, he mm. wasn't a young guy, um, but he was taken suddenly. Like, it wasn't mm. an expected thing. So, yeah, there was definitely a sort of, sort of shock. But, yeah, being surrounded by nature in the woods together, mm-hmm. yeah, it felt healthy for sure. Yeah, it's a, it sounds like a the right way to do it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly given me something to think about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very much fancy being buried under a tree. One of the weird things that did happen on the way back, normally when we drive back from Norbrown's Farland, it's about five hours, five and a half. Normally we'll see one, two, maybe three UK cars uh, with the UK license plate and obviously the steering wheel on the other side of the car, which people always get a kick out of. Um but this time, there was maybe a hundred British cars we saw. It was a sea of Brits. Uh, every service station had Brits mm. uh, in all sorts of different vehicles. Some obviously families on holiday, some looking more like business people. We even saw two like local buses 
looked like city centre buses that had signs like, come and drive for us in English on the front. So I don't know how fucking lost they were, but it was really, <laughs> really, really weird. Neither of us had ever seen so many British people. Uh, and that kind of smoothly transitions us into the next thing I want to talk about, which is the travel crisis that's going on. Uh, so obviously the lucky Brits I saw the other day were the ones that got over into Calais via Dover uh, or Folkestone uh, into, is it also Calais to Folkestone or is it, I don't know. Where does the Eurotunnel get off? My dad came through, I think it was, was it Seabrooker? Hull to Holland. I don't know where in Holland he got off at. Yeah, is it Hook of Holland, I think, is from Hull, yeah. And then there's uh, my brother and his wife and their son are coming to see us this weekend, and they're coming okay. via, I think it's North Shields to Amsterdam, and then they're driving down. But it seems like the whole of Britain is in mass exodus, except for the ones who are trying to get to France, who are currently stuck yeah. in... Hours and hours of, of tailbacks because, well, yeah, it's Brexit travel chaos. It's all the things they said wouldn't happen, you know? It's France, um, mate. It's all France. Those, it's always those, France, right? Those, those French, are, they haven't forgiven us. <laughs> they go, they're trying, trying to teach us a lesson. They might be enforcing the rules a little harder, but then, like, that's what people voted for. This is what they wanted. They were told yeah. this is what the potential would be. And, like, if you complain about traffic, fair enough, but if you're blaming the French for it, it's like, well, no, you, you made a decision be adult enough to accept it but it is that thing of cake and eat it isn't it it's mm -hmm. like well we we wanted to leave but we didn't want the chaos to go along with it and it's like well you don't get that it's not a if this then that kind of situation you know where you get to choose what you want yes british exceptionalism raising its ugly head oh yeah for the millionth time in the last six years but i don't think it's british people or english i feel i haven't seen anyone like normal people blaming the french i've seen a lot of people online who are like mm -hmm. twitter accounts with three followers or like politicians but i haven't really seen like the average british person going oh them bloody french because i reckon they know as soon as they get over the border they see exactly what's happening mm -hmm. like they see the fact that all the the tailbacks are, are like was it 76 seconds or something it takes to check the passport and stamp it if you've got a family of four in the car it could be up to four minutes and yeah. that's where the tailbacks start because it, it's four minutes say if you've got families of four and there's loads of families and cars and it's four minutes four minutes four minutes yeah. and you're trying to cross the border like that's the way it is and it's the way you've just got to sort of accept that that's what we, what we wanted passports to be stamped we wanted to be a third nation so mm -hmm. But I still wouldn't want to sit in the queue. <laughs> no, no, I'm definitely not going to Dover in a hurry. Uh, I think, yeah, obviously your your brother's very lucky to be able to get the ferry from North Shields. Like that's doorstep. That's a, that's very very good. Geordie's man, we're fucking mint. Yeah, <laughs> you've been ready for this for years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've always had an escape route. We just didn't tell anyone about it. It's like sending the Geordies. Like you got a direct link. It'll take yeah. you twelve hours to get to Amsterdam. I, I don't know how Amsterdam is, and just full of people going, "Yeah, man, have you tried that gun? So like fucking hell, yeah, whoa, it's pure mint here, like. But it isn't surprisingly weird. But of course, we, yeah, Dover is not doing very well and there are no. all sorts of problems. But it's not just the ferries and the trains. Um, airlines are, of course, having a huge issue as well. And that is another smooth transition into our main article here. Stop showing off with your transitions. Yeah. You always do that. You're always like, oh, I'm so smooth, mate. Get me on the radio. It's almost like we prepared this. <laughs> <laughs> So we've got a great headline here. Uh, German tourists told to use colourful luggage to avoid airport delays. So Germans are being advised to ditch the, the classic Samsonite black bag uh, <laughs> to make it easier to find them when the luggage is lost. And yeah, I think this is a really nice example of Deutsch pragmatism. We know you like <laughs> the really beautiful black bag. But have you thought about a nice pink? Uh, it'll make life easier. I like how you're celebrating German pragmatism caused because of the total chaos of German organisation at airports. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. we're pragmatic. Don't look at the pile of baggage behind us. <laughs> like, we're pragmatic here, okay? No, don't look behind the curtain. It's, uh, it's only a mountain of luggage from everybody's trip to Malaga, you know? The head of the Frankfurt airport, Mr. Stefan Schulter, said that the black suitcases have contributed to the uh, many difficulties faced by airlines and baggage handlers in recent weeks, uh, because obviously it's hard to tell the difference between bits of luggage. I like this. The head of the airport is like, 
It's the customer's fault for having <laughs> luggage that looks the same. Exactly. There's no system beyond how they look. Don't look behind the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems pretty insincere uh, to be critical of people choosing black luggage. And yeah, baggage handlers, yeah, they've got a really crap job at the moment. And of course, they are mm-hmm. massively understaffed. And so, yeah, Schultz also gave the, the interesting advice of wherever possible, just take hand luggage. Uh, of course, this is a great way to save money on those fees. But if you're going on a holiday, which is one of the main reasons to travel at the moment, hand luggage isn't really going to suffice, uh, I don't think. I can get a week's worth of clothes into like a rucksack, mm-hmm. and that's a, probably the max yeah. I could get in there. I mean, if you go into like a nudist colony, then you're laughing, aren't you? Yeah. Going to some random nudist colony in like Turkey. Well, not Turkey, probably not Turkey. <laughs> All those famous Turkish nudist colonies. <laughs> I was just like, I been like loads of Germans got a Turkey. There must be an FKK beach somewhere, like where no one can see it. I'm sure, yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that would be the one way to do it. I mean, what was funny for me was reading the reasons for it, the reasons for this baggage crisis mm-hmm. and it is very much like this is from lufthansa and it's from the same it's from frankfurt Allgemeine, and they were talking about how uh, there's been loads of flights cancelled thousands of flights cancelled yeah. because they don't have enough ground crew baggage handlers and a lot of that's to do with them making a lot of these support staff redundant during the pandemic and now they're saying well certainly lufthansa are saying this they're saying well oh, we couldn't expect that there was going to be so many people traveling, mm-hmm. which made me laugh because I did a quick Google just looking for stories on this topic. And there was a report from like March the 2nd where Lufthansa was where it announced like, oh, we're predicting there's going to be a big uptick in, in traveling during the summer. And I was like, so you did know, no. but you still didn't prepare for it. Fair enough. Okay. But even their employees have come out and said, that, and this is a quote, I believe, from the representatives of employees saying that the the board of Lufthansa had blatant organizational deficiencies, mm. which I was like, even that's an understatement. Like, if you ran a business like this and then claimed, oh, well, we didn't expect the passengers to fly, you basically had to make loads of people redundant during the pandemic. We're not prepared for any sort of destabilization at all. There was no preparation for these giant companies for what happens if there's a financial shock or anything they're just working like month to month essentially in this massive company that does international flights and puts thousands and and thousands of people on planes every day and they couldn't plan ahead in any way shape or form they didn't plan ahead for like obviously fair enough the pandemic was a shock to everyone but they knew eventually the pandemic would end and people would go on holiday so like what were they expecting and they still couldn't prepare and of course, companies like Lufthansa and many other airlines also took huge bailouts. Uh, oh yeah, huge cash injections from the government to keep them afloat during this mm. this incredibly, as you say, unforeseeable, unpredictable time. Uh, but they managed to keep up uh, payments, dividend payments to shareholders along that. Uh, journey oh yeah so yeah it's kind of hard to feel sorry for them because you shouldn't feel sorry for these airlines they are conniving bastards uh, and frankfurt is run as a business as well it is also exactly a conniving bastard and so yeah it's just everyone's just passing the buck pointing fingers at each other and eventually mm-hmm. it's fallen at the consumer which is a really interesting yeah. take on the whole thing exactly I want to engage your English trainer brain and I want you to analyze this language that I'm going to give you here from uh, last month, Lufthansa's chief executive, Carsten Spohr, apologized to his employees and customers for all the chaos. And he wrote a letter to staff that was shown to Reuters, the Mm -hmm. news agency. And this is the language you used. And you tell me what you make of this kind of language. There's a couple of bits. I'll read the first bit to you and you can tell me what you think of it. This is a direct quote from this letter. We certainly made mistakes while saving our company and more than 100,000 jobs over the past two years. That's the first thing, mm-hmm. right? Interesting framing. Yeah. Did we go too far in cutting costs here and there under the pressure of more than 10 billion euros in pandemic-related losses? Certainly that too, he said. And it's like everything's couched with like, yeah, we made some mistakes while we saved your job. And yeah. you're like, yeah, but you you really fucked it, didn't you, mate? <laughs> <laughs> no matter how you frame it, you've really fucked it. Like, But it's this language of 
this framing device. I mean, if if someone apologised, enjoying the here and there. That's nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, that was one of the better bits. But this idea of I just love that sentence of we certainly made mistakes while saving our company. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, mate. Yeah, exactly. Great. I don't know. What do you think of that language? Do you think that's an acceptable excuse, an acceptable explanation that there was some uh, mistakes here and there? And well, I mean, of course, the interesting thing with any kind of letter produced by any sort of CEO in this kind of condition is that he's writing for two audiences. He's writing for the members of staff who he hopes aren't going to quit en masse mm. because their working conditions are getting worse. They're having to deal with a lot more stress on a shift than they would have done before. But of course, he's far more interested in the second audience, which is the shareholders. Yeah. Uh, and he doesn't want to spook the markets uh, to cause any fluctuation in the value of their shares or potential dividends down the line. So yeah, it's, it's, it's bullshit. But he's, mm -hmm. he's playing the game uh, that he has to play in writing that kind of letter. But yeah, trying yeah. to like twist the guilt button, be like, hey, you bastards, like that. Yeah. You've got a job. You should be thankful. That's the shittiest yeah. kind of motivational tool. It's not a carrot nor a stick. It's just here's some gruel. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Continue to exist, please. <laughs> and you're not going to get any more either. No. Well, would you be surprised then, Simon, to learn that thousands of flights have had to be cancelled because the Lufthansa staff are threatening to go on strike? Uh, no. <laughs> no, no, it's not surprising at all. No. Uh, one of our followers, Al, posted something about it yeah. yesterday evening, and I think it was a joke. And I, I went online to see if there's anything in the news, and it's like I couldn't see anything. But then today it was announced, so I don't know if Al's got the inside track or if his joke has just come true. But it was massively inevitable. Um, maybe he's psychic. Yeah, <laughs> or maybe he is Herr Lufthansa. We don't. We don't know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, the conditions for, for workers in the sector at the moment mm -hmm. have got to be the worst they've been since the 70s. Obviously, mm -hmm. when you were a air hostess, to use that old school vernacular for that job, you had to deal with huge amounts of sexism and mm -hmm. all sorts of unwanted advances. And I'm assuming that's not the case today. But that aside, I imagine the job day to day is an absolute nightmare. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, of course, the, the German government is is bringing in or planning to bring in Gastarbeiter or guest workers uh, from Turkey to try and help resolve the baggage handler crisis uh, on some short-term contracts. But this hasn't been fixed yet. This contract mm. isn't in place, this bilateral agreement, so it's possible it might not happen in time to deal with what we're facing today. Uh, so yeah, it looks like a really shitty time to try and travel anywhere unless you've got like a canoe I think that's probably your best shot at the moment. Should we build some uh, decades from home canoes and then we can get across the uh, the channel? Yeah, I mean, if we back to Blighty, if we, can we put some sails on them and then we can like put some advertising, see if we can get a listen account up? Uh, I think that might work. Oh, you 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 want to build a catamaran? Is that what you're trying to build? <laughs> I've got a captain's hat, and I think a catamaran is <laughs> the most suitable way of doing this. I've got the beard. Um, so I'm ready for the open seas. Let's go. Aye, aye, sir. Right, so you, you, you must have, you've got Viking blood. You're ready for this. This is like just yeah, your yeah. DNA will just kick in. You, you'll have to like force me away from any small villages we see along the way because I'll be desperate to steal their, their hidden gold. No pillaging, Nick. But I, I can't help it. It's in my blood. <laughs> He's going for the horned helmet. Stop him. <laughs> I did see one person that had a really nice solution to this baggage problem with it being the black doesn't work uh and it was a woman who had had her face printed onto the bag <laughs> full size it was there's no way she's not getting her luggage glorious and um, so i think glorious. that's a really good strategy because there's an interesting side to this advice to come back to uh, what we're being told to do is of course what people have done for for years and years and years is they've had tags on their luggage that have your name and address I've done this before, all, all mm -hmm. through South America. I had my, my name on my bag to make sure it didn't get lost forever. But the German police, being the German police, have kindly reminded us uh, that it's not a good idea for security reasons. Someone could find your bag, they know where you live, they come to you, they know you have no pants anymore, you're a ripe target. Let's <laughs> thieve from this pantless wonder. <laughs> exactly. They've bought more clothes at this point. We can get them. They've got Lufthansa vouchers. 
it's pure Datenschutz in action, isn't it? It's the best example <laughs> I've seen of how like Datenschutz poor. Like you can't put your name <laughs> on something, someone might find out where you live. That's, I mean, it's not bad advice, but I'm not particularly concerned about the pants robbers. He said about a travel in August. You've not been a victim, have you? You wouldn't joke about it. <laughs> we'll have a podcast in the middle of September where I'm telling you about my my woes of losing my luggage and how. My house was raided by a load of people wearing my wearing my undercrackers on their heads. Gonna... <laughs> a load of crimson tomb gear, yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it's roughly a month ago we were talking about the price of kebabs increasing to I think it was beyond six euros at one yeah. point. Um, scary stuff. Well, one Munich kebab shop has already got a, a jump on perhaps the price increases that are <laughs> going to occur over the next 50 years as they've started selling a doner kebab for the princely sum of 35 euros. Oof. And apparently it's the best kebab in the world. Uh, and this is at Hans Kebab in Munich Schwabing. And it's the most expensive doner kebab in Germany. Uh-huh. Now, what do you think's in this kebab, Simon? Is it gold? If it was in London, I'd say there's going to be gold leaf in there. There's going to be truffle oil. Um, but I'm hoping they've not done the obvious. I'm hoping there's something a bit more interesting. So the owner of the kebab shop that sells this tremendously expensive kebab has sort of labelled the kebab as, as from Istanbul to Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is because of the number of the high price ingredients. So he uses quite a special meat in his kebab. It's not the usual veal or, or chicken. It is, in fact, Japanese Kagoshima Waigu short rib beef, mm-hmm. uh, which um, if you know the Waigu beef, you'll know it is one of the most expensive meats in the world also one of the most delicious meats in the world they've got of course as simon identified a truffle vinaigrette Mm. uh, which gives it its special taste it's always bloody truffles isn't it it is um yeah what else has it got in it i think it's got a number of other luxury ingredients other than the meat but it's mostly i guess high quality vegetables Uh, i think i'd seen in the image it had a feta cheese in it as well which seemed quite exciting Mm. um um, i'll take that all day a lovely bit of feta Uh, so it does sound like it's worth the price potentially what do you think do you think it's any doner kebab is worth 35 (laughs) euros well i mean i paid six euros for a doner not that long ago and that was my first time i paid six Mm. and it was not a great kebab i'm sad to say so i'm a little bit hurt by the realities (laughs) of inflation at the moment but i have to say this kebab does sound like something I'd quite like to try. Um, mm. Yeah, it sounds special. But of course, 35 euros is it's a huge amount of money. It's nearly three hours on minimum wage um, mm. to pay for that kebab. So yeah, it is a special occasion. There's also other exotic things that this that this crazy, mad kebab scientist is doing. Um, <laughs> so he does the Lux Dona kebab, which has veal. Uh, fresh figs, feigen, rocket, rucola, and organic fried eggs. Uh, so I'm totally up for that. Fried eggs in a kebab sounds like a really nice addition. Um, so I think I'm probably more tempted by that than the 35 euro one. I mean, it does beg the question, what could you introduce into your kebab to make it more luxurious? I guess egg is one option. But. Egg is a great option. But I mean, I like the idea of from Istanbul to Tokyo. I think that's really, really good. So um, the first thing that came to my mind is we could have from Istanbul to Franken. Uh, and so we could have Schäufele uh, instead of Karl Porter. I think Schäufele would be an absolute cracker in there. A little bit of crackling uh, pocketed around. An egg wouldn't go amiss. I think you could even do like Klaus. Um, I think that would work. So I think you can have a Franken kebab uh, with all the, the influences of Istanbul as well. So that'd be my suggestion. Have you got anything that you'd like to oh, throw into this proverbial ring? How, how do you beat that? I guess what you could do, right, is maybe make a dessert kebab. Dessert kebab. Oh, dear. Yeah. Not, I'm not convinced of that pitch. Yeah. What's I going mean, in it? I guess. I mean, the, the obvious, right? Just two slabs of stall and a bit of cheese in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> And I could start selling that as the bona fide German dessert kebab experience. I mean, we'll, it, we'll obviously toast it. It is super traditional. Yeah, for sure. No one will question this. I'll, st- I'll stick a bit of pineapple in it for you, or even oh. maybe a little bit of ham, you know, if that's what you want. I'm happy to do that, you know, because I'm a man of, of options, right? I don't want to close any doors. But 
<laughs> the producer is squirming in his seat, and you seem very quiet given my idea. So, it wasn't that long ago that we did find out there was a kebab shop that did a Hawaiian kebab, and I'm just yeah. reliving that that moment again. I'm bringing it back, but I'm putting our decades from home branding on it, and it's going to be my cheesy smile saying, <laughs> "Eat it, you bastards." <laughs> <laughs> that's the slogan eat it you bastards <laughs> so this shop's gone a different direction they're calling things like looks done a kebab and yours is gonna be called eat it you bastards yeah uh-huh. actually that's the whole brand that is it that's and we only sell one thing the one thing gets renamed every season so it's like cheese and stolen at christmas it's the dessert kebab in the summer i don't know in like springtime it could be the frulings brought kebab um i don't know in in autumn it can be i don't know i'll get my marketing team on it they've obviously been at hard at work coming up with these other ideas there'll be a spargel one at some point as well spargel on holidays grim (laughs) so grim you've even reached my limit with the spargel but i'd try it i'd give it a go (laughs) i mean i I think this is (laughs) this cultural bonding is 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 a positive thing so i'm all for this um if we can keep it under a tenner a kebab i think i think we're safe in the marketplace i could do it for 250 if you want mate uh, so, <laughs> speaking of <laughs> speaking of cultural exchanges, Simon and I, um, well, Simon certainly more than I, but I've increasingly been following Simon's lead in this, are fans of uh, the UFC. Uh, recently, there's been a rising star within the UFC, uh, a young man from Liverpool called Paddy Pimblett, which is a fantastic name, Paddy the Body. Now, um, mm-hmm. Paddy Pimblett had a very successful weekend. He won his matchup in London over yep. Jordan Levitt, and it was a submission, I believe. It was. Got the poor bugger in a yeah. chokehold. He's very nimble, very nimble, that young Pimblet lad, and he <laughs> took him out and then celebrated his tremendous victory by scranning two Donna Kebabs at the press conference, and if you get an opportunity to see the press conference, it is unbelievable. Uh, as he sits quietly and just eats his kebabs. <laughs> it's just hilarious. He just sits bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, very happy with himself, <laughs> and just proceeds to smash two kebabs in like eight minutes or something yeah. like that. I mean, I, I've watched over 100 post-fight press conferences put on by the UFC over the years of watching the sport. And I think that's the third time I've seen someone like really focus on eating food before answering mm. questions. Uh, George Jorge Masvidal did it with a bit of pizza uh, Mm -hmm. when he won in Miami and the other two are both Paddy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This this is a kid who loves his food and is sort of infamous within the fighting community now for for ballooning up in weight. Mm. Um, He would have put on like five kilos already since last Saturday just because he is just going to be gorging himself on junk food, really unhealthy stuff. Um, but he's able to work himself to the point of cutting the weight. The thing that captured me about this, and this is why we're talking about it, because obviously we're not a podcast about MMA and the UFC, mm. but Paddy, when asked about his food, described it as a German Donner. Uh, mm. And I thought that was really interesting because, of course, we always talk about Döner uh, and kebabs, but in England, it's a Donner, uh, D-O-N-N-A, and Paddy had a German one. And I don't yeah. remember ever having a German Donner in the UK. Was it a thing in, it, in Newcastle? A German it's Donner? It's not. It's, it's a, I mean, it is, and it is now, but it's become a, it's a chain of kebab places that do oh, the called German okay. Donner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the, they're okay. I mean, they are, they are effectively a German Donner kebab. They're far more expensive than, I think it was like a tenner or something. Whew. When I saw the prices, at least, when I was last in the UK. But it is, that's the brand name. And they're kind of, they're like a McDonald's-y kebab chain, basically. Okay. It's very sterile when you go in. It doesn't feel like your average sort of dirty, risky kind of kebab shop that you find at the end of a piss-up. Okay. It felt very sterilized. But their kebabs are very, 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 very nice. But they, are, they aren't they are a Donner. They're a Donner. Uh, yeah. <laughs> German Donner Lake. <laughs> but I did enjoy his evaluation where he was asked about the food and he said the pizza from the last press conference was a 3.6 out of 10. I like that kind of specific grading. But that German Donner right then was heavy. Heavy. I'm not doing justice because his Scouse accent, it is a prime example of the breed. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, uh, as you mentioned, the way he was focused on eating this thing, it was zen. Like, he wasn't mm. listening to anything happening around him. All he could see and feel was this German Donner. And oh, it was yeah. a joy to watch him eat it. 
and to see him eat a second one after six minutes was really <laughs> it's kind of incredible i watched the thing from his training camp and i think it was the first day of training for this particular fight about six weeks ago maybe maybe longer than that maybe it was eight weeks ago and it was interesting you talked about his weight gain because he does get a lot of abuse online and there's been like photoshop pictures of him Mm -hmm. looking making him look bigger and when he started the training camp oh he was bigger but like he started losing weight straight away because his days were massive man he was doing like starting at nine and doing sort of warm-up slash kind of practicing different holds and maneuvers. And then he did boxing training in the afternoon. The boxing training was just constant, constant. He was like sparring, and then he was out of sparring, then he was doing the bags, then he was doing the bags, then he was doing shadow boxing, then he did shadow boxing, and he was back in sparring again. And it was just constant. And by the end, he was totally wrecked, and you could see he was totally wrecked. And the Mm. the boxing coach that he had was like, I told him not to do training in the morning, but so it's his problem. Anyway, get back up. He ate the kebab like he fights. Like, it just sort of, <laughs> like, you know, he's sort of attentive and he's sort of very aware of, of the environment, but he doesn't care because he's focused on this very yeah. particular thing that he has to do. And in this case, eating a kebab or in the uh, octagon, knocking the seven bells out of some poor bugger in front of him. <laughs> I mean, it, it does seem to have, like, this intensity to them that a lot of fighters, this ultimate confidence. At no point in the videos I watched of him training in his training camp was he, like, any sign of a lack of confidence. It was no. all just, like, you knew he walked around going, I'm going to beat this guy, and that's yeah. the end of it. It's quite interesting to see that dynamic, that level of confidence you definitely need to do this sport because you can't go in and think, oh, I might lose this. Because yeah. you'll get fucked up <laughs> so I, quickly. I say he's, he's the hottest of prospects at the moment and everything's mm. looking like potentially a world champion down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it would be very, very exciting. Yeah. But as well as doing a pretty interesting post-fight interview with the kebab, immediately after his victory, he was also interviewed in the ring as is normal. And it was an unexpected uh, interview because he was interviewed by uh, Michael Bisping, uh, who, of course, was the the first British UFC champion. And Paddy took a moment and took the mic and shared some really emotional information about his personal life. And, of course, we don't get too much of this in the build-up to fights because personal life is normally a sort of weakness. Mm-hmm. And he revealed that a friend of his had, had actually committed suicide just before the fight. So we got what he said here. Uh, I woke up on Friday morning at 4am to a message that one of my friends back home had killed themselves. This is five hours before my weigh-in. So Ricky lad, that's for you. There's a stigma in this world that men can't talk. Listen, if you're a man and you've got weight on your shoulders and if you think the only way you can solve it is by killing yourself, please speak to someone. Speak to anyone. I know I would rather have my mate cry on my shoulder than go to his funeral next week. So please, let's get rid of the stigma. Men, start talking. And you don't see this. I've never seen this in the UFC where someone has taken that opportunity fresh off a victory to address mental health and suicide. And, of course, the fact that he's been directly touched by it, by his friend killing himself and not having it affect his his fight in a meaningful way. Obviously, it must have been incredibly hard for him. But it was a really, really positive step, I think, for this like young superstar with the world at his feet to to take the opportunity to address something that is a real problem, especially in like a hyper macho, hyper like don't talk about your feelings community. Uh, so hopefully, there's a genuine chance he might have saved some lives uh, by addressing that topic in the way that he did. I think sports leading the way, certainly in Britain, when it comes to men's mental health and and getting people to think about sort of not just their physical health but like i said your mental health there's a lot of things for testicular cancer but there's also a lot of mental mm. health awareness coming through and it, it reminded me actually when i was reading that and i watched the the post-match interview in the ring i'd read a story i think it was in the athletic about newcastle united and how the the team had bonded together by i think it was two days into the new coach being eddie Haub, the new coach being there he stood up in the canteen and told everyone his life story mm-hmm. and he had pictures and he talked about his family and his kids and the dog that he lost that he loved and and just told this group about himself and then every week a new member of the team would stand up and talk about their okay. lives and about their, their loves and their interests and it bonded the team together but it was also interesting because because it was it also connected with the, the interview was with a young player for newcastle called Sean Longstaff 
and he had some pretty dark times over the last couple of years with regards to football and injuries. And he was saying that he'd spoken to his dad and his dad's like a proper Geordie bloke and sort of the archetype of the people who don't talk about these things. And he mm -hmm. said that he was sort of broken down and his dad had responded by like, just being a dad, you know, and, and sort of supporting his sons. And, and that was kind of lovely, but also out of the blue, he got a text message from one of his teammates, uh, Matt Rich, and he said, look, I know you're having problems. Here's a number. You should call this guy and, and speak to somebody about it, you know, and don't bottle it up. You need to talk about it. And I was like, that's someone that you see a lot with, with certainly male sports stars now and certainly with football, people talking about their mental health a lot more. And I think it's so positive because – yeah, there isn't that many forums. Not everyone has a podcast where they get to get the fucking bilge out every mm. every week. You know, like, and I think having that opportunity to speak to somebody if you're having trouble is so it's so important. Yeah. And I've found that, and I'm sure you found that too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've both had our tribulations over the last couple of years. You know, I mean, of course, having a friend that you can turn to is is of course yeah. a wonderful thing. But there are lots of professional services out there as well. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, for moments of of emergency. Uh, we've got a couple of contacts here for you. So if you're in the UK, you can call 116123, and that's the number for the Samaritans. Uh, you can also email joe, J-O, at samaritans.org, and you'll get a reply within 24 hours. So you don't even have to pick up the phone and talk to someone. You can take your time and do it through uh, email as well. If you're here in Germany, most of these services are German language only. Uh, unfortunately, but you do have uh, the National Association of Statutory Health Insurance Physicians uh, are reachable at 0800 000837. Um, you can also get advice on psychiatric hospitals um, through a medical on-call service at 0800 000837 as well. Uh, the German Federal Center for Health Educators uh, is available for telephone counseling uh, and free anonymous advice as well, 0800 And the final one we have is the Telefon uh, um the German version of the Samaritans. Anonymous, free and available 24 7 on 0800 111 0 or 0800 111 0 or 116123. Um, I say they are only available in German language only, unfortunately, but there are, uh, I say, UK numbers uh, mm. and American ones available as well. I mean, you can also use the email on that uh, telephone seal sorga, and also there's a web chat service mm -hmm. available on, on uh, telephonesealsorga.de. And like, if you need help, speak to someone. Yeah. I can highly recommend it. We've got so much news to catch up on after our uh, lovely uh, episode with Derek Ray the other week, but there's a lot of news that we, we didn't have a chance to cover. And we recently had uh, German Comic Con's Family Day, which was on July the 16th. So we're a little bit behind here. But um, I am, uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where saying you're a geek is basically just saying you're part of the mainstream at this point. But um, <laughs> I love a Comic Con. I love a fan convention. I love the whole... Uh, getting dressed up as your favorite comic book heroes. Uh, I love sci-fi, all of that stuff. So I've spent um, the last couple of days just filling my boots full of videos from the con, but also um, reading about sort of uh, German comic books as well, like loads of different bits and bobs. Um, so I'm going to take the opportunity now to discuss the exciting world of sort of comic conventions in Germany, because it's not really something that people think of straight away. When they think of Germany, they don't necessarily think of comic books or comic cons but uh, this is the German uh, comic con is obviously modeled on San Diego's much more famous older brother San Diego comic con the German comic con's been going since 2015 it's gone from strength to strength it's still smaller than San Diego's comic con but it's it's growing it's growing it's getting bigger and bigger and they certainly attract a lot of uh, a lot of celebrities from various TV shows I would definitely love to go to comic con but I'm not sure about Mr. Maddox, how do you feel about Comic-Con? Would you go to a Comic-Con? No. I don't think I would. <laughs> like, if you said, like, no one else will go with me, will you, will you come? I think I'd do it for you. Literally, no one else will go with me. Can, can you go with me to Comic-Con? <laughs> <laughs> like, no one would. No one would go with me. Uh, if you buy me, if you get me through the day with beers, I think I can probably bring myself to do it. What would be the thing that turns you off about Comic-Con? I just don't care about any of it. I think that's, that's that's my main barrier to entry. Like there are lots of 
things in Comic Con that I've I, I've encountered and and like Star Wars definitely raised to a certain degree on Star Wars and I love the original three movies. But in terms of comics and cosplaying, like it's just never really been anything I've been particularly interested in. I, I don't want to slag it off because uh, everyone should definitely enjoy this lane. Uh, I'm all for people getting into this kind of stuff but for me it's just it's never it's never clicked i just don't care yeah i think there's a lot of kind of hyper focus sort of fan love for certain tv shows certainly for certain films the growth of marvel it can feel a bit overwhelming and it certainly felt from looking at the videos and watching some of the panels that it was very america focused mm -hmm. but there was a lot of like again it's not going to be the super it's not going to be sort of um the stars of marvel turning up you're definitely going to get maybe the b c list celebs but uh it certainly would be worth seeing what I, what they had in 2019 was christopher lloyd uh was at the 2019 one and i would have gone just to see christopher lloyd get a photo with him i'd be quite happy but i'm not a massive fan of like panels i'm not really interested in how how things are made i like enjoy them i like to talk about them but i'm not necessarily want to know the secrets behind stranger things or something like that which is again this seems to be the the makeup of comic con germany which is a lot of american tv shows mm. a lot of quite older ones that you wouldn't expect i watched a panel uh from 2018 and it was uh wentworth miller from prison break he's okay. also in the yeah. flash and uh he was doing a, a panel and the panels are quite short they're usually about 20 minutes so it's not a lot of time to get to meet these these people who you you maybe watched on television but it was sons of anarchy prison break those kinds of shows were quite popular mm -hmm. and that was quite funny i thought it was quite interesting that sons of anarchy was one of the bigger pulls for for a comic con because you'd think it would be marvel or dc or it would be kind of indie comics and that kind of thing but it's very america focused very big uh, franchise focused uh, not so much the smaller kind of indie comic books or or German artists. I mean, I guess it comes down to sort of the barrier to entry. Like, if you, for example, want to get into like X Men, obviously you've got the films, you can watch all that stuff. But if you really want to get mm. into X Men, you have to read the comics, and of course that mm. requires a huge amount of finance. Well, not a huge amount, but you got to spend quite a bit of money to be able to get to a position where all the law uh, is is clear to you. And whereas if you like Sons of Anarchy, which is on Netflix and you pay your subscription monthly or you can get your Disney Plus and get all your Mandalorian fix and all that kind of stuff, it, it's a way that young people who don't have a huge mm. amount of expendable cash can get involved in yeah, the American culture in, a, in an mm -hmm. easy and affordable way. And I'm all for that. That's great. I think it is. Young people are... Uh, increasingly engaging with global culture which is often america driven a lot of american tv shows and it's not surprised given the the sort of production quality uh, but there was some sort of like german elements like the hard all the people who do the synchronization voices for all the all these different films because obviously in germany if you have a, an american blockbuster it's going to be dubbed so you had the guy who is the voice of characters in big bang theory or you had people who okay. did the voices for the marvel heroes so that was like a really interesting element of it that there was like these these voice actors that people know quite well and they've heard and, and certainly the uh, draw a crowd of people who want to speak to these uh, people who do the synchronization uh the cosplay element's interesting because it ties into something that i didn't realize until maybe last year when i started teaching at the university is a lot of young people the the like marvel the like dc hell of a lot more like sort of manga and japanese based mm. art uh, a lot of people a lot of kids i know who were um they, they would tell me about a hobby and it was maybe drawing and then you'd ask what they were mm -hmm. drawing and they were like oh i draw like uh, naruto or i'm drawing um Oh characters or i'm mm -hmm. drawing the last airbender that kind of stuff yeah like that's the art style and so there's a lot of i was quite surprised by the influence of japanese art and culture within sort of comic book communities obviously it's big anyway but like when you look up cosplayers in germany a lot of them are, are cosplaying manga characters mm -hmm. rather than league of legends as you'd see in some place a lot of people doing sort of video game characters in america or they're doing the big comic book characters or they're doing mashups of different characters together to see this mm. was a little bit different 
and I watched a couple of the panels and one of the things that came across, it's funny, the producer was talking to us earlier about his trip to San Diego Comic-Con and how it was such a positive experience and everyone was really lovely. And mm -hmm. that's the vibe he got from the panels. It was just all these young kids speaking English as well because they're asking questions. Mm -hmm. And so it was just lovely to see like people with, like young kids with like a sort of pretty good grasp of English, some of them different levels of English, but going up and asking questions to these celebrities, which must be like heart and mouth moment for a little kid, you know, yeah, yeah. meeting somebody you've, who you've seen on television and you want to ask a question. But the questions were interesting because a lot of them weren't, what was your favorite episode? What was the funniest moment on set? But a lot of them were like, what kind of dreams do you have for your life? And like, <laughs> oh, like are you having a nice time at Comic Con? Like they were like really heartfelt, kind of lovely little questions about like, and you still saw the people like the, the panelists dead surprised that they were being asked about sort of their emotions and their feelings rather than like in scene uh, <laughs> 2.1 you said that you had a red glove but then in episode 42 you were wearing blue gloves can you explain why that is the case and you're like yeah they obviously hear that shit all the time yeah so it's like really these earnest little kids like and, and young people like asking questions of the panel that was something that uh, i thought was quite noticeable it was actually a response from the Stranger Things panel that I'd watched with, I think it's Finn Wolfhard, who at the time was like 14. And he's in Germany doing a comic con, doing this <laughs> interview. And I was like, my God, it must have been a weird experience. In fact, that was one of the questions. I think the last question was, is it weird being 14 and being a celebrity and being at a comic con? And he's like, yeah, it's a little bit weird. But he said he had, and maybe this is a platitude, it's a celebrity, but he's a young, young kid, seems quite earnest. And he said that the comic con experience in Germany was the best comic-con experience he's ever had because everyone was really respectful and he also said they were really quiet which i thought was quite telling about <laughs> maybe american comic book fans really respectful really quiet really polite and he said he really really enjoyed them that experience which sort of says something about how germans approach their like their hobbies and and, and their things They're like a lot of respect for it or mm. a lot of like admiration for it which i thought was lovely but i was massively surprised that there wasn't more uh, certainly in the the footage and the videos and all the stuff on the youtube channel there wasn't a lot made of german actual german comic books okay so i, ha I had to do a massive deep dive and i learned quite a lot about sort of history of comic books i'll post this article in the notes but it was an article about the history of comics in, in germany and it goes through sort of its early comic strips in the sort of uh pre-World War One, talked about people like Rudolf Dirks, who's very famous. They actually give an award, Rudolf Dirks Award, to people at Comic-Con for comic book artwork. And he did like sort of, yeah, these sort of 1920s comic strips and stuff mm -hmm. like that in newspapers. But it also opened up a lot of like really interesting avenues. Like there was a Berlin comic book collective that focus entirely on sort of manga they were called uh i think they were called monogatari which is a type of manga i'd never heard of but there was this like berlin-based comic book group and i was like oh maybe that's where the japanese connection comes from because you had this quite popular group that ran sort of 1999 to the mid 2000s that were producing this kind of artwork and then i found out there's loads of like female comic book artists that work in manga as well there's like mm -hmm. a big connection there i thought that was quite interesting I thought I'd give you a couple of good German comic book recommendations to, to yeah, leave on bitter. instead of throwing you to like Marvel and stuff like that. <laughs> the first place I would look, in all honesty, would be the Max and Moritz Prize, which is given out every year for comic books and comic strips. You'll find a lot of really uh, interesting ones. And I'll just run through the 2018 winners because there were some really good ones. So you've got um, Reinhard Kleist is quite a famous comic book artist and he's famous for um, a couple of different things. He did um, a Johnny Cash comic book okay. uh, called uh, Cash, I See Darkness. And it's in, from 2006, mm. but it's a really good uh, bit of work. He also did, more recently, did a Nick Cave graphic biography uh, okay. called Nick Cave, Mercy on Me in 2017. Ooh. So there's some some really interesting kind of artwork. But what you really begin to understand as I talk about this list, and I'll only give you a couple, but German comic, native comic books are very much more philosophical and biographical mm -hmm. than like, they're not making superheroes, they're making quite interesting comments on life. Uh, there's a guy called uh, Marvel, I think his name is, his, his real name is uh, Marcus Witzel, and he's created a, a, a really great comic book, a really famous one, uh, called Kinderland, which is about childhood in East Berlin, and okay. that's really worth a look. 
uh, again using the sort of art style of comic books to tell quite quite meaningful stories um there's another one by adrian von bauer which is called lieber und monster which is about a, a couple that go on a date and then fall into an alternate universe with monsters like uh, cthulhu and stuff like that so okay. that's that's definitely worth a look there's one more that i wanted to give you and it's a woman and her art style is so amazing she's called barbara yellen and she's done quite a few different comic books but her art style is so like fantastic Amina is is one that's very popular, but she's got another one that's from 2022 called But I Live. And the artwork is just gorgeous. It's well worth a look. Uh, so if you've got time, look up some of them. Uh, messages, tell us if you've read them. And uh, yeah, I'll be interested to talk comic books with anyone uh, at any time. And certainly I'll be happy to learn more about German comic books if you've got recommendations, do let us know. If you're tweeting, tweet at 40% German. Uh, you're going to get a bit more... <laughs> Back and forth. Uh, I, I will. I will happily try my best uh, at decades from home, but I know nothing. <laughs> so, yeah, I know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, zusammen. Servus, la. That brings us to the end of the show. We're off to go see if we can get one of those thirty-five euro donors. Mm, yum yum. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating on iTunes? It only takes a minute and really, really helps us. Give us some star ratings on Spotify. Chuck them stars our way. Retweet us, share a link, or post with the hashtag Decades From Home or lowercase on Twitter or Instagram. You can also support the podcast by going to ko-fi.com forward slash Decades From Home and contributing to help offset the outrageous cost of our luxus donor. God, yeah. It's going to cost a pretty penny. As ever, if you have any questions, feedback, or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet Simon on at decades from home and you can tweet me at 40% German you can also get us on 40% German at gmail.com if you have time take a look at 40% German.com weekly articles are up every Saturday all that's left to say is thanks and bis some next time tschüss ciao